We're going to turn to God's Word now, and Hannah's going to bring us our Bible reading. It's from Luke chapter 17, and it's the first 19 verses. If you're in the Red Church Bibles, it's page 1051. If anyone needs a Bible, just lift your hands and Pete will will bring you a Bible. So Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 19. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round his neck than for him to cause one of those little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother's sin, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and said, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to that servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he rather not say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Thank you very much, Hannah. Okay, too. Before Dan comes and speaks to us, we're going to sing a song just once, which is a prayer, asking God to, to meet with us and to change us. And then Dan will come on the stage and I'll, I'll pray for him. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Let's stand as we sing this together. Your spirit might open your word to us. It might impact our lives. It may change our lives that we may be made more like you. And as Dan brings us that word now, would you speak through him, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Brilliant. Well, do keep the Bibles open in front of you as we go through our passage together. Well, the day of the job interview, I'm sure most of us have been there and nervous and yet excited, uh, hungry, uh, and yet not wanting anything to eat, uh, rehearsing our list of achievements and all of our strengths, uh, and memorizing the response to the inevitable question that will come up, 
What is your greatest weakness? Well, it's just that I care too much. You see, days like job interviews, they cause us to self-evaluate everything about ourselves, don't they? Yeah, have I cut my hair too short or is it too long? Does wearing a red tie make me come across too forceful? Is my smile professional enough? Or does me coming across too professional cloud my sense of personality? Do you know, it's the power to put doubt in everything and question everything about ourselves. And do you know, the temptation is that we do that spiritually to ourselves as well. We start to spiritually self-evaluate ourselves. Have I got faith? Have I got enough of it? Does God really love me? Really me? Is there anything that I've missed on this checklist of following Jesus? And whilst maybe some form of inward evaluation of where we are spiritually can be very healthy, when it loses sight of the gospel, it can become so damaging. We can lose all sense of peace and security with God. We can become so deeply unassured of everything that God has promised us in Christ and everything that he has given us in Christ. And you know, all of this just gets amplified with the message that we heard last week, doesn't it? When Jesus warns us of the consequences of rejecting and not listening to, to him. As we saw with the story that Jesus tells of the rich man who ends up in hell. And so when we hear of what's, what's at stake when it comes to Jesus, well, fear and doubt can easily come in and make our faith seem as unstable as a boat in a storm at sea. But you know, this morning, we see that Jesus teaches his disciples, and he teaches us here this morning, that following him requires us to simply have true and humble faith in him. Following him requires us to simply have true and humble faith in him. And as we go through our passage this morning, there are three sections as we go through for us. And the first one is humble faith. Humble faith. And that's from verses one to six. You see, as we've been going through, we've been going through Luke as our series. And as we've been going through Luke, it's interesting to notice in each part the audience of Jesus's teaching. You see, from chapter 15, we're we're told that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the teachers around at that day, and Jesus' disciples, they're gathering round to hear Jesus. But at different points from then on, we see that what Jesus, he he focuses on, at times, one particular group, uh, the Pharisees or or Jesus' disciples. But we have to imagine at at that point, the other group, kind of within earshot, hearing what Jesus is saying to the other. But you know, right at the start of our passage, what does it say, verse 1? It says, Jesus said to his disciples. He was saying what we are going through this morning. He was saying this to his small band of followers who are being trained by Jesus, who are being equipped by Jesus for a life of following and serving Jesus and his kingdom. And Jesus goes on in the next verse is to give his disciples, he gives them a warning 
and he gives them an instruction. And the warning comes in verses 1 to 3. Look with me. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Jesus gives his disciples a very clear, a very sobering warning. Jesus says temptation will come, so watch out for that. But, he says, beware more so of you becoming the tempter yourself. He says the responsibility and the consequences of teaching others are so high. Something the Pharisees at that point were doing awfully around them. They were leading the people astray, teaching the people astray, as they were rejecting Jesus and seeking to destroy him. And Jesus says, watch yourselves. Do not go astray from me. But Jesus also gives his disciples an instruction. Uh, Look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. If they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Forgiveness for Jesus' followers isn't optional, it's essential. Even under the hardest circumstance. I mean, can you imagine how difficult it would be For someone to commit the same offence against you seven times in one day, to repent with you seven times in one day, and even on the seventh time, for you to forgive them. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? We don't want to do it. But Jesus teaches us forgiveness. Isn't that what most of Jesus' teaching is like? It's counterintuitive. And again, it's the opposite of the behavior of the Pharisees who rebuke plenty and yet forgive little. And it's after this warning and this instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples that we see in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They hear Jesus' expectations And everything that has gone before in the passages that we've seen in the previous weeks in Luke. And their response to Jesus is, we need more faith. We need more. We're not able to live like this, Jesus. Increase our faith. But you know, Jesus, at the end of this first section we're looking at, do you know what he says to his disciples? Look with me at verse 6. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The issue, Jesus says, is not with the quantity of your faith, but the quality of it. It doesn't matter if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, just as long as it's the real deal. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. It's Michelin star, and not bargain bucket. You know, some people believe that all you need to receive that answer to prayer that you've been asking for lies in the person praying just to have more faith. You might hear people saying, you just need more faith. 
But Jesus says that's not it. It's not a question of having more faith. It's a question about having the right faith. And the right faith changes our whole perspective. Faith that makes forgiving people hard to forgive possible because it's focused on Jesus. And we'll see a bit what, that, what this faith looks like later on this morning. But you know, I love what Jesus says here. I love his response that faith the size of a mustard seed is still a powerful faith. Maybe this morning we might not feel like we're theologians or, or like we walk into the office or to school tomorrow morning and we're able to give adequate and clear and comprehensive answers to people's most difficult questions. But even if like, we feel we only have a simple faith in who Jesus is and what he's done, then don't think that's nothing. Don't think that's nothing. Don't think your faith can't be used. It's not the quantity, it's the quality. Humble faith. But secondly, we're going to look at humble service. And that's from verses 7 to 10. Let's read that. Look with me at verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. See, after Jesus teaches them that they only require a humble faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus now moves on with his disciples to model humble service. So he says in verse 10, so you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You see, Jesus tells his disciples that being a part of his kingdom is not a human right that we're born with. But rather, it's a wonderful, it's a gracious, it's a God-given privilege. Do you know, it's the same as if a a servant in Buckingham Palace came up to bring the queen her tea. And after the servant presents the queen with her tea, the servant doesn't wait, expecting the queen to turn around and invite them to to join her for some afternoon tea. That's not how it works. The servant gives the tea, walks out of the room, and finds out what's next on the list. Because belonging to Jesus' kingdom is described in the Bible in many different terms, which we might be familiar with. Romans 8 tells us that, uh, that we are children of God. That we've been adopted into God's family. Revelation describes the church to be the bride of Christ. But here in Luke, Jesus describes his disciples as servants of the king in his kingdom. And it's an aspect about our identity that that maybe we tend to forget as well. Partly because servant implies responsibility. Servant implies that we have a job to do. Servant implies that we have a king to serve. And it implies that service to this king, King Jesus, as his followers, as his disciples, is not optional. And maybe we're hearing these words of Jesus this morning and thinking, this sounds like too much work. 
too much effort, a burden, we might say. But you know, we must never forget what a privilege it is not to be just called children of God, but also servants of God. We get to serve the King of Kings. We get to work and serve a kingdom that is never going to pass away. You know, people like um, Paul and Peter and James and Jude, people who wrote most of the New Testament and were leaders in the early church and they were given authority by Christ himself. Well, do you know, when we read their letters, right at the start, we see how they describe themselves. Paul, in the letter of the Philippians, he opens, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Peter, in his letter in 2 Peter, says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The book of James, James says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And many more open the same way. They would have been able to echo verse 10. We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And that's such a humbling thing for us to say this morning, isn't it? You know, if any of the Pharisees were overhearing this conversation with Jesus, I I doubt that any of them would have wanted to say this. But you know, when we read that quote, and then we think of Christ our King, the one we serve, and when we think of what he's done for us, the way that he suffered, he bled on that cross for us so that we could even enter and belong to the kingdom that he rules over. When I think of all of that, and when I think of the way that we serve his kingdom now, when I can think of a statement no more truer than, I am an unworthy servant. I don't belong in this kingdom. I don't deserve to be in this kingdom, but for the graciousness of the Lord Jesus. I'm an unworthy servant. I don't, I don't deserve anything that Christ has given me. And I've only done my duty. Jesus, when I think of what you've done for me, when I think of how you have served me, how you humbled yourself in a way that I can't even get my head around, when I think of that, I have only done my duty. To serve you is the least. I cannot pay you back ever for what you have done for me. I am an unworthy servant and I have only done my duty. It's an attitude of humble service that Jesus says is to mark his followers today as we serve Jesus' kingdom today, now, this week, as we go into our work, into schools, as we serve his kingdom. Humble service. But finally, we see a humble response That's the final part from verses 11 to 19. Humble response. You see, we saw earlier how it's not the quantity of your faith that's the important part, but rather it's the quality of it. And in this last section, well, Jesus shows us what this faith looks like. It's a wonderful illustration. Look with me at verses 11 to 19. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. 
they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now we see at the beginning of that section that Luke records that Jesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is back on the road and he's heading towards the city of Jerusalem where we know is going to be the place of his crucifixion and resurrection. And the conclusion of this story that Jesus tells is that though ten people were healed of their leprosy, only one came back to Jesus to praise and worship him for what he had done. And that one was a Samaritan of all people, which is even more amazing because of the hostility that existed back then between Samaritans and Jews. And just look at the response that this Samaritan man gives Jesus after he's healed. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This Samaritan man, he throws himself down at Jesus' feet and thanks him. But Jesus ends this encounter by saying in verse 19, Rise, your faith has made you well. See, Jesus commends this man for his faith. Not the quantity of it, but rather the quality of it. And this man shows us what true faith looks like. True faith sees who Jesus really is. Because in this story that Luke records for us, as Jesus tells his story, Jesus doesn't touch this man. He doesn't even say to this man, you're healed. All Jesus says to this man is, go, show yourself to the priests. And it's on the way to the priest that this man is healed. But you see, this one Samaritan man understands that it's Jesus that's the source of his healing. He connects his healing with his encounter with Jesus. He understands and he connects Jesus in doing the work of God. True faith sees who Jesus really is. But also true faith responds to what Jesus has done. You see, the Samaritan man, when he was healed, and he knew and he understood that Jesus was behind it all, he didn't then get on with life and forget the way that Jesus had transformed his life. Rather, he responds to what Jesus has done. He went back, he threw himself down at Jesus' feet and gave him the praise and thanks. True faith responds to what Jesus has done. That is the faith that has saved this Samaritan man, seeing and responding to who Jesus is. That is faith. That is faith that can be the size of a mustard seed, but powerful enough and strong enough to save. 
you know, in the book of Acts, there's a, there's a story of a man who's in Philippi. He's a jailer. And one night when he's on the watch, an earthquake shakes the whole prison, the foundations of it. And the prison doors are open wide and all the shackles on the prisoners are unshackled. And thinking that that was it for him, thinking all the prisoners had gone, he drew his sword ready to kill himself. But you see, there were two men in the prison that he was guarding, Paul and Silas, who were imprisoned for speaking about Jesus. And Paul, seeing this jailer just about to kill himself, he cries out and he says, don't do it. We're all here. No one left. You know, you can imagine the relief it would be, you know, phew, everyone's still there. No one escaped. And yet, if we read the story, that's not what happens. That's not his response. In fact, he gets more terrified and he falls down at Paul's feet and he asks him a question. He says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And, you know, we're seeing at the beginning, that's a question that maybe we tend to ask ourselves all the time. What must I do? How much is enough? When have I got to stop? What have I got to tick off next? What must I do to be saved? What is it, God? How can I be rescued? How can I have assurance? How can I know your love and your peace? Well, you know, Paul gives a wonderful answer to the jailer. Because all he says is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe. Have faith. It's the same word. Have faith. Trust. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. That's how simple it is. And it's what we've seen this morning. Jesus asks us simply to have faith, to trust him alone. To see who he really is, the Son of God, the King of Kings. We've been singing about him this morning, haven't we? And by seeing who he is, respond to him. Responding by coming before this Jesus. Trusting that what Jesus accomplished when he got to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, on his death on the cross and resurrection three days later, he accomplished that for you. You know, it's responding by acknowledging not that Jesus is a saviour, but that he's your saviour. It's acknowledging that Jesus is not just a king, but that he's your king. That is faith. And if that's us this morning, if we can say that we have trusted and we believe in who Jesus is and we have responded and fall down at his feet then the questions of self-evaluation can stop. Have I got enough faith? Have I done enough? It can all stop. Jesus says that is faith that is strong enough to save. Faith that can be small as a mustard seed. But if it's true faith in Jesus, if it's faith like it's responded like the Philippian jailer, then it's a faith that will last for all eternity. It's faith that will give us assurance of every sin washed away. Faith that removes the fear of hell and replaces it with the hope of heaven. That's it. Jesus says, trust me, have faith, and you will be saved.
But we're going to end our time this morning by singing one final song. And I believe it, it's um, by faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design, in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. That is the life, that is what Jesus has called us to do, to trust and to believe in who he is and what he's done. And we can have faith the size of a mustard seed, but it's wonderful because Jesus says if it's true faith, if that is it, then that is still strong enough to save. So stand and let's sing by faith.